Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Isnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and happy 2023. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today we have as our guest, Steve Feshheimer. He has been the Chief Executive Officer of New Belgium Brewery since 2017, where he oversees New Belgium's executive team, short-term strategy, industry leadership, and day-to-day operations. He joined New Belgium from Beam Suntory, the world's third largest premium spirits company, where he was Chief Strategy Officer. What's really remarkable about New Belgium is that it's recognized as one of the outside magazine's best places to work, and one of the Wall Street Journal's best small businesses. The brewery is a platinum level, bicycle friendly business as designated by the League of American Bicyclists. I love that. And one of the world blues most democratic US businesses and certified B Corp. And we're gonna talk about all of that today. But first, I just wanna say welcome to the Caring Economy, Steve Feshheimer. I'd like to begin as I always do, Steve, and just ask our guests a little bit about their life story. How did you get from Birmingham to where you are today and how you were mentored, some of the pivots along the way, but give us like a two or three minute digest of your your story. I grew up in Michigan. I was born in Detroit, lived in Birmingham, uh, so lived in Michigan until I left for college. I went out east for a few years. I was at University of Pennsylvania for my undergrad and then worked briefly in New York as a consultant. Actually lived in New York on 9-11 and shortly thereafter moved to Chicago, where I spent the next almost 17 years between Chicago and the suburbs. I got my MBA while living in Chicago. I went to the University of Chicago for that. Spent some time in the city, spent some time living in the suburbs once I had some children. Uh, it's also where when I got married as well while living in Chicago and then moved out here to Colorado about five years ago when the opportunity to lead the new Belgian business uh, fortunately came my way. And so now consider myself a quite a happy relocated Coloradoan. Can you tell us you went to um, to New Belgium from Beam Centauri. So you went from like the one of the biggest players in the spirits industry to a really almost, it wasn't yet, it was beyond a startup, but still kind of a smaller operation. How did that all come about? It was interesting. In in today's world, there's recruiters who call you and you use friends to get referrals into roles, or perhaps you know someone who works there. This was truly cold outreach from Justin Cross, who leads recruiting here for New Belgium, and in fact, still leads recruiting here for New Belgium. And he found me through LinkedIn. We started a conversation, and when he first reached out, I wasn't ready to make the move or or entertain the opportunity and made some commitments at Beam uh, to a few people around roles and projects that I would be working on, and I wanted to honor those commitments that I had made. But four or five, six months later, Justin and I were still occasionally communicating. It became a more logical time for me to entertain a different opportunity. And Mm -hmm. he and I started talking and then pretty quickly, the team brought me out here to Fort Collins to meet the rest of the executive team and to meet our co-founder, Kim Jordan. And from there, things went pretty quickly and ended up with a job just a couple of months after uh, those more intensive conversations began. The recruiting world has been disrupted for sure. So you're proof positive that there's a lot to be said for old school outreach, person to person, actually having a name 
in an organization such as your colleague versus a algorithm that just generates a email exactly. reply, right? So, uh, so tell me a little bit about when you got there, was it broken? Did they bring you in to fix it? Was it just anticipating a new sort of quantum leap forward? What was the reality you settled into? When I joined New Belgium, definitely was not broken, but there were some things that I thought as I looked at the business, and frankly, as I had conversations with Kim Jordan, the co-founder, that I thought I could be really helpful with. And that was an important part. It's always been an important part to me as I've looked for new roles and new opportunities in my career, that you're going somewhere where you think your experience and expertise can actually help the situation that you're entering. And when I came to New Belgium in 2017, the business had really just gotten to national scale. So being available in all 50 states, had fairly recently opened its second uh, production brewery in Asheville, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And so it was starting to be a small business or medium-sized business, if you will, but dealing with the complications of a large business. And so how did we want to think about you know, maximizing production at our two breweries and being really efficient in that work? How do we want to think about building out a national sales force and now efficiently covering all 50 states? How do we want to think about managing our large chain accounts and our 400 distributors? These are questions I had worked on frequently during my time at Beam Centauri, sometimes in the US. So it was really directly applicable experience, but I was also fortunate enough to do similar projects and similar work in countries all around the world. So I'd seen seven, eight, nine different versions of how you can organize to call on distributors and to call on, on major accounts. And New Belgium had gotten there sort of in a, in a bit of a piecemeal fashion and it opened one or two new states every year for a long period of time. And the structure you create as you're doing that is perhaps different than the structure you want once you have 50 states open. So it was a time to just really think about restructuring the business for what it what it had become over right. its almost 30 years at that point. We're 32 years old now, but it was a good fit overall between what the company needed and what my experience that was. I love that part of the history of your company and how they were biking through Belgium and decided, which has amazing breweries, but were you drawn to the spirits industry or were you more like the management consultant person? And this is kind of where you landed because you seem to have really a strong passion and commitment for the spirits industry. I've been a management consultant. I worked for American Associates, which is a small strategy consulting firm for a while. Mm -hmm. And I also worked for the Boston Consulting Group after my MBA. When I left BCG, and I briefly did a little bit of a startup, but my job search was really focused on companies that were big enough to understand what... Uh, ex-consultant sort of brings to the table and, and would have a role uh, for a person like that as part of their team, but mm -hmm. was also small enough where I felt like it could have real impact because that's what excites me as a leader of an organization or just a, a, you know, a member of a team is really being able to impact where the company's going. And when I came to Beam, while it's the number three spirits company in the world now, as you say, it wasn't huge at the time in, in 2009 when I joined and really was able to develop a great relationship with our CEO and our CFO at the time and really have some impact on the business, which was what was important to me just in terms of making me happy in my own role. That's an important part of any job search, something that's going to be fulfilling to people, but you know, also allowed me to really learn a lot and develop in that role. Can you talk a little bit about that sort of special quality? And it seems to be like 
in a Goldilocks world, just right, not too big, not too small, and just a sublime place to work. Tell me why it's so special. Kim, when she started the business with her then husband, uh, Jeff Liebisch in 1991, really sort of took her social work background as a key input to how she started to think about building the business. And because of that, people have always been a really important part of the new Belgium ethos. And having that as sort of a key part of the business for over 30 plus years, to your point, has really embedded it in sort of the organization and the culture and how we think about operating as a company. And we have some things, B Corp, perhaps the most, the most notable of those, it sort of is a, as a nice governance mechanism or a nice proof point for how it is that, that we choose to balance both what are real needs of the business, but are also needs of our coworkers here at New Belgium and the communities in which we operate and our environment more broadly, we can balance all of those things in what I think is a really important way for business to think about operating, mm -hmm. but it's also just a fun place to be able to lead because we get to balance all of these things in a way that I think ultimately leads to better outcomes for all of those stakeholders that are impacted by our business. There's certain states that are, I think just not as progressive when it comes to workplace practices, solar, sustainability, and, and all. But we certainly benefit from being in a really progressive town like Fort Collins and Fort Collins here in Colorado. It's a college town as well with CSU here, does a lot to support our business. And we do share a lot of views of the world, if you will, with, with how uh, both our city and, and county government here operate. But I also think we can be successful in a lot of places. And I think there are a lot of potential coworkers, if you will, if we were if we were located in a different city, who would really want to work at a company that focuses on the things that New Belgium focuses on. And I think there's a lot of other you know, cities, counties, towns, and states, if you will, all around the country that would support a business like ours. But there's good luck that we um, have Fort Collins as our hometown. And we're yeah. really proud of Fort Collins. And Asheville in North Carolina is a wonderful town as well. It's really supportive of the type of business that we want to be. And so that's a great place for us. And then we also recently joined together with Bell's Brewing out of Michigan. And there, they're sort of split between uh, Comstock and Kalamazoo in Michigan as well. But those are great uh, cities as well that really support our business and what it is we're trying to do as, as an employer, uh, but also as, as a company and as a, just a member of those communities. It almost feels to me in this COVID era that you have been fortunate to be oriented the way you are as a culture within a business. There's such that we read so much now about the the silent quitting and, uh, you know, people making career changes. You have this, what you talk about as a rehumanized approach to business. And that seems to be exactly where the recruits and the employees of today want to go. They want to know that they matter, that they're part of a purpose-driven brand. Is that a fair assessment? We all spend a lot of time at work. And I do think it's really important for people. And I think it's growing in terms of importance, as, as you know, to be at a place where you feel valued. And to my own career search that we talked about before, that as you join somewhere, you feel like you can be helpful, right? You feel like you can impact the business. And we we spend a lot of time giving our coworkers tools to positively impact the business. We've practiced 
open book management here for essentially the, the entirety of our now almost 32 year history as a company, but all of our employees have access to our financials. All of our employees understand how their team or their department or their function impacts the business. And if they want to understand why something costs uh, what it does or how these sales perhaps impact our overall profitability, everyone has access to that data because we think that helps empower them to make better decisions as they think about the, the long-term future of the company. And so I do think that is an important part of just feeling fulfilled and engaged at work. Mm-hmm. And then the other balance to that is you know, how do we think about benefits for our coworkers as well? Because yes, you want to enjoy coming to work and feel challenged and engaged and feel like your work matters. But you also want to feel like your company is providing you with the healthcare benefits and the 401k benefits and all of those kinds of opportunities that you can feel safe and secure as a coworker as well. And that your company is taking care of you in those ways. So if you can get that balance right, you can be a really attractive employer. And we see that in our own retention rates. Our retention rates are quite high um, from year to year. And and I think when you can put all those things together, you can really be a successful company for the long term. Yeah, I uh, I wonder like the open um, book is that does that include compensation? Like all employees know how much each other is making. We don't share compensation um, at the individual level, but people certainly have access to overall salary data. And now in Colorado, there's a requirement for new job postings to okay. have salaries uh, included as part of that. And I think there's a few other states perhaps yes. that became law. Uh, starting here in 2023. It's been required in Colorado. I'm all for that greater transparency and apropos this sort of zeitgeist. I think that is where things are headed anyway. So you have so much more competition now than say 10 years ago. It seems to me just as an average consumer, there's so many brands out there. How do you differentiate yourself vis-a-vis the buyers? And then if you walk a mile in the buyer's feet, how are they supposed to filter through all these different microbrewery brands and all these seltzer this, hard seltzer that? I mean, it's it's daunting, it seems to me, from a consumer perspective. And I wonder how you look at that from the business inside. You're right. Uh, just as context, maybe for the listeners, there's almost 10,000 craft breweries now in the United yeah. States. Now, now a, a huge portion of those, I don't have the exact number in front of me, 75, 80% of those are really only operating uh, a tap room or uh, style business. So they may not be packaging beer for sale in a local retailer, but you still end up with a significant number of potential products on the shelf. And every one of those, you know, a couple of thousand people who are packaging beer are packaging multiple types of beer. So you you can get into a, a situation where any retailer has a fairly large number of options that they have to to put on their shelves. And what craft beer entrepreneurs would say is making a better beer. But in fairness, you know, some of the bigger beer players do make really great beers as well. But there is a there is a craft around what we do and there's a people-centric model around what happens in craft that's perhaps a little bit different than some of our larger competitors. Producing good beer is not enough anymore. Most, uh, if not all of those you know, nine or 10,000 breweries make pretty good beer. And at New Belgium, we're really focused on making world-class beer. And that's really important to us. I think we do an incredibly good job of that. And we have dozens and dozens of 
GABF metals, that's sort of the most important, uh, you know, beer quality metal you can get in the U.S. And we have dozens of those and Bells has dozens of those as well. And so we also focus on building a brand and talking about how we integrate those brands into communities where they're particularly relevant. And so Fat Tire is the first certified carbon neutral beer in the United States. It was really built as an, you know, an outdoor lifestyle brand. We're continuing to focus on that. And, and we continue to look for opportunities to integrate Fat Tire into communities where we know there's going to be resonance with the brand. And that's, and that's important. So we're not just saying, hey, here's, here's a great ale from New Belgium. You should put it on yourself. It's, here's a great beer, yes. But here's all these other things we're doing to support and build the brand and all these other communities that find this brand really interesting. And we are really confident in coming to your, to your store and to your bar and want to purchase and drink this as well. And so we're bringing customers along with just a great beer. And I think that's an important part of the story that we tell. And then with Voodoo Ranger, which is, I like to say the world's largest IPA, although nobody tracks that uh, at the global level, we know where the U.S., uh, we're the U.S.'s largest IPA, and it's the largest IPA market in the world. So we're probably the world's largest IPA. Yeah. We do a lot in the art community. We do a lot in the gaming community with that brand, mm-hmm. and we're able to sort of authentically participate in those communities in a way that we can really build fans as well. So again, we, when we go to a retailer, it's like, yes, we have a great IPA. We're also, again, we're bringing you fans, we're bringing you customers of the brand and a recognition that makes their purchase in your store really easy and obvious. And so that helps that helps your retailer and helps your buyer as well. Is there still seasonality in brewing? But now it seems like it's year round everything all the time. Or do you actually have some sort of seasonal offerings? We continue to have seasonal offerings and styles within the industry go up and down depending on the season. So Shandies maybe are the most obvious example. Shandies are really popular in the summer. The most popular pumpkin beer as part of Voodoo Ranger, Voodoo Ranger Atomic Pumpkin. We sell it in September and October. You're not going to sell pumpkin beer really in any other month but those two. So there is some seasonality to it, but you know, Voodoo Ranger Imperial which is the largest part of the Voodoo Ranger family. I mean, it's available all year. January and February are the two slowest months for New Belgium. I'm sure you're always supporting for responsible drinking, but do you do you have any campaigns or initiatives or collaborations talk about and how you you inculcate or educate consumers around responsible drinking? Finishing off the, the last part of the January conversation, we do not at this time make a non-elk beer, which is what is obviously a little bit more popular to talk about in, in January to start the new year. We're certainly looking at some options. We think it's really hard to make a really good non-elk beer. And when I talked earlier about wanting to make world-class beers, we're going to participate in the non-out category. We want to make sure we're doing it in uh, a really exciting, high-quality way. Yeah. And to your other point, of course, we do have a lot of um, focus on responsible drinking. The Brewers Association, which is the trade group, if you will, for craft brewers, uh, leads a lot of work in that space as well. So we build off of some of what they're doing, but we're also focused on having a, you know, a drink responsibly message along um, with our offerings mm-hmm. as well. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, again, today on the caring economy, we have as our guest, Steve Feshheimer, who is the CEO of New Belgium Brewery out of Fort Collins, Colorado. Um, I wonder if you might talk a little bit about the diversity of your company, both in terms of your employees, but also your customer base. Are you 
are you growing in leaps and bounds in diverse audiences? Do you have a very set demographic? Craft beer certainly has a history of being more focused on a white male consumer. And if you just really looked at the data over the last 20 or 30 years, that would be the majority consumer of our industry. And the reality is New Belgium, for most of those first 25 or 30 years of the company, wouldn't have been wildly different from the industry averages in those spaces. Coming from Spirits, which is where I worked before New Belgium, that's an industry that does a much better job of attracting um, a diverse consumer group. Uh, whether that's gender diversity or racial and ethnic diversity, there's a lot more of a focus on that in the spirits industry than there have been within the craft beer industry. And it was one of the most striking things when I first joined in terms of the differences between perhaps the companies or the industries that I saw. Uh, after I joined in early 2018, we really started to put a focus on the diversity efforts, both internally. So how do we think about recruitment and, and hiring and retention and all those things that drive a more diverse workforce? But then also, how do we think about it from a consumer perspective? Because mm -hmm. if you look at the next generation of sort of 21 to 29-year-olds or even 30 to 39-year-olds, which are some of the key age demographics for mm -hmm. our industry, you have a much more diverse generation coming than the one you have now and then the one you had before. Some of that's beer styles and, and taste preferences and, and how do those things develop. Some of that's just how do you think about your marketing materials and your marketing collateral? And of course, then some of that is how do you think about the coworkers who are part of our team um, who are going to be most knowledgeable about how do we get better as a company and being uh, a relevant brand to that, that more diverse audience that's that's coming up. Yeah, my view also is that the the X factor, the intersectionality, businesses now are realizing that people are more than just one thing. As a gay white male, you know, I'm not just gay, I'm just not a white male, I'm not a New Yorker. Um, you have mixed race families, mixed religious family, all these things. So I'm optimistic that long-term, a lot of these things will hopefully fade away and you'll just be the person that's on the receiving end of a, you know, a, a checkout counter. Can you say a little bit about the environmental aspects? You talked about the first carbon neutral beer. I know you've done some things with solar and your new facilities. And I would believe that that environmental focus is also a compelling part of why consumers are happy to engage with your brand. What's really interesting about New Belgium is Kim and Jeff, as our two founders back before they sold any beer in 1991, took this, this hike in Rocky Mountain National Park, which is near Fort Collins, and basically at that time said, hey, if we're going to start this company, if we're going to do this crazy thing, we really want to focus on doing four things. And those four things, one of them was making world-class beer. They wanted to promote beer culture in the U.S. So again, if you go back to 1991, there weren't many craft breweries. You mentioned you traveled in Belgium before. It's very different than a European culture around beer, yes. at least it was in 1991. I'll skip over one, but number four was having a lot of fun as a company. That's important. We still talk about that. But but the one I skipped over there was be uh, environmental stewards. Again, you go back to 1991 and say, here's a new company that hadn't sold any beer, had no revenue, should really have been focused on how, how am I 
financially stable as a company, but actually instead of that really said, Hey, being environmental stewards is something that was important to them in 1991. When I joined in 2017, 26, 27 years later, I had this huge history of authentic work in being environmental stewards that I got to just take forward, right, and, and build upon. And so while we've done some really great things, we can talk about in the last five or six years, you can't skip over the fact or, or not acknowledge the fact that Kim and Jeff did amazing work for 26 years in putting this front and center. And so it was really in the ethos of the company and the coworkers that were here, uh, which made doing more work in that space even, even easier, but more of a challenge because we've done the easy things yeah. uh, in the space. And so I talked about... Uh, leading the way with Fat Tire being the first certified carbon neutral beer. And we think we think certified is a really important part of that because there's a lot of people making claims in the space. And we want to make sure that we continue to build up the credibility of different marks, right, in, in the space. And we use SE Global for our for our certifications, but we want there to be real governance behind the claims and behind the targets that, that people are going after. But to your point, we've had solar here in Fort Collins for I think since 2008, I might be slightly wrong on the dates on that, but we, you know, we, we put a huge solar array here in Fort Collins long before I got here. We were the first wind power brewery in the U S but then we continue to do things. We just added uh, new solar arrays last year to, to our brewery in Asheville. We drive internal efficiencies as well because of a lot of opportunities we have, but companies also have just to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by really focusing on internal efficiencies. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing we do is we pair that with advocacy work. What I really enjoy about being able to advocate in areas around carbon neutrality or climate change or greenhouse gas reduction is we're typically cast by whether it's the media or politicians as the type of company who would be against these things. We're a medium-sized business who's dealing with all the other difficulties of being a business. And yet we talk about how much this, how much climate change is impacting us as an organization and how much we need government intervention and government support to get to a more stable climate and a more stable environment, because that would drive more stability for us as a business. And we were the first company that really in beer that really measured all of our greenhouse gas emissions as a company. So when you get into scope three, in particular, the things like freight and transportation, agriculture and packaging are really our big, our big areas. And New Belgium, we can advocate in these spaces, but we can't change them without some government support. And that's a really important part. And so I really like that advocacy as the, the last pillar of what it is that we're focused on in this space as a company. How, how does that advocacy happen? There are opportunities through some of our partners. We do some really fun and exciting work with Protect Our Winners with POW, who does what they call a hill climb every single year. It gives us an opportunity to get in front of our elected government officials in DC and really talk about the impact that climate change is having on our business and whether it's our concerns about what the malt crop is going to be for this year, the barley crop is going to be for this year, and how the hop growing regions in the US are moving because of climate change. Climate, yeah. those, those kinds of things are real impacts to our business. 
And in fact, we pay a lot of people in our company to manage those impacts. And so when we hear, you know, you can't afford, you know, regulation or policy or anything as it relates to addressing climate change, the reality is we can't afford to not have those things because they're really, really expensive for us as a company to manage. And if there's issues with hops or issues with barley, it's going to be companies like us, you know, medium-sized companies and smaller that are going to be most negatively impacted. The big players, ABI, Molson Coors, they're going to get the ingredients they need, or they're going to pay for them. It's going to be the small and medium-sized businesses in the U.S. who most struggle to survive in a world impacted by climate. Yeah, I think that classic debate about short-term versus long-term, if you have a long-term commitment and vision for your brand, you're going to make those tougher decisions up front and take the hit so that you have the long-term opportunities. A couple of last questions. Uh, one is uh, the B Corp conversion, was that under your watch or did it happen before you came in? We were a B Corp before I joined. Okay, and tell our listeners a little bit about what that's like to be. At sort of the highest level, the way to think about it is being a B Corp means you are committed to, yes, thinking about shareholder value or profitability or whatever phrase you want to put around that. But you're committed to actually balancing that with the needs of the people who work for you and the communities in which you operate and your impact on the overall environment. And in Colorado and in many states, you can actually be a B Corp, like a legal registration for the company, which actually gives me as the CEO or would give our board, I guess, if you think about it in that manner, a legal obligation uh, to think about all of these different aspects of of the business. And that's really important because when you have shareholders involved in your business and in a world where there's been so much focus on shareholder primacy, if you will, being a B Corp actually allows you to say, yes, I get it. You, You are one of the important stakeholders in this business as a shareholder. And we're not ignoring that fact at all. But we have to balance what the shareholder needs with what these other groups need as well. And it provides you some important legal protections in making those trade-offs as well. And so that gives me a lot of comfort when we say, hey, we're going to put a solar panel in in Asheville. You could have, depending on your company structure, this would not be true for us. We have a lot of support. Um, through uh, through our shareholders and everything else for that kind of work. But in other companies with other people I talk to, your shareholder might say, well, but that's not exactly the return on investment I'm looking for. Maybe it's a little bit lower. And, and so you kind of get into these difficult conversations with your shareholders around how do you balance these different needs. If you're B Corp, you have a very clear mandate, if you will, to balance these things. And if you think that's the right balance for you as a company, then as a leader or as a board, you can make that decision and feel really confident in in doing so. But then it also serves as a really nice governance model for us as an executive team to say, well, B Corp saying X, Y, and Z are important to us as a company are important for progressive businesses. Let's make sure that as those standards evolve and change, that we're continuing to evolve and change with them. And it's also great for the the public, for the consumer and for your employees, because certified is certified, right? It's it's not just a statement, right? You know that this has some some credibility behind it in a way that it wouldn't otherwise. Yes, for sure. 
So my last question for you is a fairly common one I ask at the end of these interviews, which is words of wisdom, pearls of advice you might have gleaned throughout your career, or even advice just for young professionals starting out. What words of wisdom do you have? It's just talking about young professionals first. Living here in Fort Collins, I mentioned Colorado State's here, so I get the chance to go and talk in certain classes at the university, and I've done that when I lived in Chicago as well. And I think from a from a career standpoint, you know, one of the things I I encourage people to think about is in your 20s, it's really just, it's an opportunity to learn whether you want to go to more schooling, whether you want to try different jobs, whether you want to hop around, right? That's okay. Like you really need to learn and understand what you're really interested in from a business standpoint in, in your 20s. And, and that's a great opportunity to do that. And I really suggest that people in their 30s get really good at something, whatever that passion point is for you, whatever it is, uh, that you think you want to spend the next 20 or 30 years of your career doing, figure out in your 30s how to get really, really good at that thing, really knowledgeable and really experienced. And then as you get into your 40s, right, you can start to think about, well, how do I find leadership roles within that space, within a company or an industry or whatever it is that you found your passion around? It doesn't have to be business, it can be in the nonprofit world, it can be wherever your, your passion is, but use your 40s sort of find an opportunity to really get leadership and drive change and, and have impact. That's a bit of what I've tried to do over the past 25 or so years as a, as a professional. And I, and I say it that way to people because I think there's rightfully, as people are in their 20s in particular, there's a lot of concern around compensation. And it's not to say that's not important because it is. And I know, unfortunately, people are coming out of uh, particularly undergrad with more debt than is really appropriate given you know typical starting wages. But you can get yourself really focused on just compensation in your 20s, as opposed to learning and finding where your passion is. And I've seen that derail, not necessarily careers, but definitely sort of derail that happiness and engagement people have if they haven't spent a bit of time in their 20s figuring out what, you know, what really interests them. Yeah. And, you know, we said at the start about the role of LinkedIn in this conversation, and I think it's another place for people to explore and see without even having to change jobs, you can get a lot of insight that you and I didn't have when we were starting out in our careers about brands and about people who are leading those brands just by looking at LinkedIn and some of the other online sources out there. So for sure, for sure. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been a great honor today to have Steve Feshheimer with us. He's the CEO of New Belgium Brewing Brewery. Rather, I hope you'll check out any of his brews this year and I hope you'll come back and tell us about the next decade, Steve. I will. Thank you so much for the time, Toby. Um, I, I do hope uh, we get to meet in person sometime soon and would love to be back on the podcast again at some time. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at T Usnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing The Caring Economy with your friends and colleagues.